It's Romans passages, a little harder to keep up with than the Acts passages, aren't they? Closely, densely reasoned statements from Paul. So we're going to do our best to unpack that this morning. But before we do, uh, man, isn't this place beautiful? Uh, somebody was working hard this week, I know. And uh, I was looking at the tree, and I was realizing this is the line of David, isn't it? So all of, da- all of Jesus' ancestors are on the tree. My favorite is Zerubbabel, whose name is so long, he needs two ornaments uh, to fit it all there. So, but it's great. Thank you so much uh, to the folks who worked on that. Well, uh, have you ever done something that permanently makes another person's life worse? That's a pretty heavy question, isn't it? You probably didn't come here this morning, so I'd you know, make you consider that question. But my family, let me tell you a story. My family, for I think about the last nine years, has celebrated Thanksgiving on a Saturday. And it started because of conflicting schedules, but now it's tradition, so we can't change it, right? It's a turkey. And it's a fun tradition. Uh, Since most Thanksgiving breaks start on Thanksgiving Day, it can be hard to do prep for the feast, right? You're spending, you wake up early on Thanksgiving morning, you're frantically working on all of this stuff. But when you don't celebrate until Saturday, you can leisurely prepare on Thursday and Friday. And as a matter of fact, I started preparing on Wednesday evening. I didn't make the whole meal. I just made a few bits. I made the turkey. Uh, That's on Wednesday evening is when I spatchcocked and dry brined my turkey. So you see that that here, and you're probably thinking, that's really gross. Thanks a lot. (laughs) In case you have no idea what I'm talking about, spatchcocking means I cut out the backbone of the turkey. Nancy lended me some shears for that, and you cut right through. You make it lie flat. That way it cooks more evenly. It cooks faster. Dry brining, you just pour salt on it, which, you know, how is that not a good idea? And that actually helps it retain moisture and gives it a good texture and helps that skin crisp up really nicely. There's a bunch of science behind dry brining that I can't explain. Uh, Please Google it later, but it really works. So anyway... This was, I started Wednesday evening, and then on Saturday, uh, when we were getting ready to eat, I made a compound butter that I spread all over the turkey. I used a pound of butter, folks, all over the turkey. It's an 18-pound bird, so it's a big bird, but that's still a lot of butter. I was struggling at the end, like, where can I put the rest of this butter? But I made this compound butter. I, I rubbed it all over the turkey. I even lifted up the skin and rubbed it underneath. It's still gross, isn't it? So we continue... And then I put it on the smoker for a couple of hours. And this is what came out. That looks good, doesn't it? Now, I don't want to brag, but man, it was good. And uh, it was totally cheating to use all that butter. But I mean, the end result, pretty fantastic. It was great. Here's the thing, though. When you're cooking a turkey or any meat, and I love cooking, and I love cooking for my family and for groups, you got to cook it right, don't you? You can't overcook it. If you overcook the turkey and everyone comes, everyone's Thanksgiving is like a little less good, isn't it? So there's some pressure with that. But the worst mistake is to undercook the turkey because then you make everyone sick And they, you know, if you overcook the turkey, they'll just like, hey, remember when you made that awful turkey? Like, yeah, thanks for bringing that up again. But if you make people sick, you know, then they're angry. They're like, dude, 
why'd you do that? What's, you can't ever make the turkey again, and you're out of the family, probably. I mean, that's what I would do. I don't know if that's what you would do or not, but see, you got to do it right. You have to get it to at least 165 degrees internally to kill all those germs that would otherwise make you sick. People may razz you about an overcooked meal. It doesn't really change anyone's life, though, does it? You'll make everyone's Thanksgiving a little bit worse. <laughs> but life will go on, assuming you survive the salmonella, if you get it. I've never food poisoned anyone. Just in case I invite you over for dinner someday, I want you to know that. <laughs> but some sins are even more serious than salmonella, aren't they? Some sins actually change the course of people's lives. And sin isn't just a private thing. Sins can change the course of the lives of the people around us. And you and I, we know this from both sides, don't we? Some of us have had absent or even abusive parents. And that sin has changed the course of our lives forever, hasn't it? Not for the better. Some of us... Uh, we have done something in our life. Maybe there was a car wreck, and you know, we, we didn't think we, we were trying to drive safely, but we injured somebody, and their life will never be the same after that. If you're a parent, uh, I mean, I joke about this, but I joke about it because it's, it's a little bit true. I wake up every morning, and I wonder, how am I going to screw up my children's lives today? Not just, you know, the psychologist will tell them in 20 years, oh, man, your parents screwed you up, but something that I didn't give them or too much of something that I did give them, or whatever it was. Our sins actually, they last longer than just the moment they're committed. They're real consequences that can last a lifetime. And that's what Paul is talking about here in Romans chapter 5. He brings back to our minds Adam and Eve, specifically Adam as the head of his family, as representative of the very beginning of humanity. And he says, when Adam ate that fruit, it changed all of our lives, not just his and Eve's, but all of our lives for the worse, forever in this world. As long as this world exists in the way it does, Adam's sin continues to claim victims and continues to count casualties. But what has God done about this? What is the journey to Bethlehem? Tell us about Adam's sin and those sins that ring throughout time. Well, first of all, let's talk about exactly what Adam brought into the world so we can understand just how deeply grace reaches. Paul says in chapter 5, verse 12, Just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all people sinned. The first point Paul wants us to realize is that Sin has actually entered our world in total through Adam. Adam's choice made all of us sinners. Sin wasn't present in the world. Evil wasn't present in the world in a way that changed and impacted humanity until Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And after that, the world was broken in a fundamental way. And we all have been corrupted in our very nature so that we are inclined towards sin. One commentator wrote on this idea, Paul shows that individual acts of sin constitute a principle or network of sin that is so pervasive and dominant 
that the person's destiny is determined by these actions. In the present instance, then, the sin that enters the world is more than an individual sin. It is the bridgehead that paves the way for sinning as a condition of humanity. Think for a moment, maybe, of D-Day. See, sin, through Adam's action, was the invading allied force that came to Europe and eventually spread all throughout it. That's kind of the wrong way to give that metaphor, perhaps, because, you know, the allies defeated the Nazis. So let's turn it around. Think of it as the spread of the German Empire in World War II from one place to another, impacting and corrupting everything that it touched creating death camps everywhere that it went. Adam's act of sin was the opportunity for the infection of the entire race to begin. And there's no one who hasn't been infected by sin. And how do we know this? How do we know this? Well, because we've all sinned, right? And it's a strange thing about human beings that we all sin. Now, we may say, oh, you know, sin's not a real thing or something like that, but we all agree that there are certain things that we do that at least we're not the optimal choice. And I think we're probably even all agreed that we've done things that have hurt ourselves and the people around us at one point or another. This is the human condition that we do what Christians call sin. And it's because Adam sinned first. How would you like to have that millstone hung around your neck? Can you imagine what it would have been like for Adam and Eve in the opening chapters of Genesis to have experienced paradise in Eden, a world without sin, a perfect world, and to lose it, but not just to lose it for yourselves, to lose it for everyone who came after you. Everyone came after you. Some of us have experienced generational sin in this sort of way, whether it's alcoholism or whether it's abandonment, especially in our family, sin quickly becomes generational. Do you participate in some of the same sins that your parents did? Do your children participate in some of the same sins that you do? Of course we do. And even though we all have our own role in it, it all starts with Adam and Eve. Because of Adam in Genesis chapter 3, because of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, God curses the entire creation. He curses the serpent, as you heard Kelly sharing with us. Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly. You will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. There are a bunch of fundamental things that are being broken here. It's not just about, well, snakes now slither instead of whatever. I don't know what they would have done before that. But I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. The very, you, you ever walk into the, the forest or you ever see a deer somewhere? Do they tamely wait for you to walk up and give them a pet, maybe feed them a carrot or whatever you feed deer? Or do they run? They run because the relationship between humanity and nature is broken in the curse. There's also a promise here, which we'll come back to, actually, which is really the theme of our entire journey to Bethlehem, that God would put enmity between you and the women. You, you heard this, between the serpent and the woman. And what will happen? He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. And now we know it's not just about snakes, right? 
Because when we have children, they don't go out just looking for snakes' heads to crush. There's something bigger going on. God is saying this is foreshadowing the titanic struggle that will take place between sin and righteousness, between good and evil. Evil, yes, seems to have won today, and sometimes every day seems to be winning a little bit more. But in Jesus Christ, in this seed, this descendant of Eve, he will crush the head of sin. To the woman now, he says, I'll make your pains in childbearing very severe. Ladies, you can probably testify to that if you've been through it. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Isn't it strange that something as joyful as having a baby is accompanied by the worst agony of your life? Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Interpersonal relationships are broken. This, again, can you feel the millstone around Adam's neck getting heavier and heavier? And to Adam, he said, you farmers are going to love this, cursed is the ground because of you. You know why it's so hard growing your crops? Adam, what a jerk. You know, he totally messed up this world for us. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. You ever drive... Uh, by past some of the groves, and you see, I, it always, I have no idea why any of this is true, because I'm a total idiot, but you see some groves between the trees, all the weeds are growing, right? Because, I, I don't know, ask a farmer exactly why this is, but I do know at least one reason, it's a lot easier to let the weeds grow than to pull them, right? The ground, naturally, we, we're going to find this out very soon. Because what happens here in the winter? The grass grows, which is really neat. It makes the hills green. But when you actually get up close to the grass and you look at it, you go, That's, those are just weeds. They're everywhere. They grow without us even trying. As a matter of fact, we try and keep them away. We put, we put chemicals down on the soil. We put organic stuff down on the soil, depending on what kind of farming or gardening that you're doing. And the weeds still find a way. It doesn't matter what you do. The weeds grow before the fruit, don't they? And they choke it. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, until you die. Since from it you were taken, from, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. You hear what he's saying there? I mean, I'm just picking this up as I'm reading it here. He's saying, you are being unmade by your sin. You are taken from the dust. You will become dust once again. This is the weight that Adam and Eve are carrying. Wow. But God promises them, remember, the seed of the woman, one of the woman's descendants will crush the head of the serpent. You are on the road to Bethlehem, Adam and Eve. If we can just make the stone a little bit heavier very briefly here. We find out that our propensity to sin comes from Adam's initial choice. And before we get too angry at Adam and Eve, by the way, the question to ask ourselves is, would we have done any better in the garden? I'm going to supply the answer for you right now, which is probably not. But not only does the propensity to sin enter through Adam, condemnation enters through Adam. Here at the end of our passage this morning, uh, in verse 18, consequently, 
Just as one trespass, just as one sin resulted in condemnation for all people. You notice what it doesn't just say resulted in other people sinning, all people sinning at some point. It says everyone is actually not just a sinner because Adam sinned, everyone is guilty because of Adam's guilt. Doesn't seem very fair, does it? Well, I can't answer all the questions of fairness this morning. I just want to make Adam's weight a little bit heavier for us to understand exactly what it is that God wants to lift and how strong he is to lift it. Just for the sake of argument, let's just take what Paul says at face value, which is a good thing to do with scripture, but it's also good to ask questions. Our propensity to sin and our guilt all hang around Adam's neck. But Adam's not the end of the story, thankfully. Condemnation and sin enter through Adam. Death reigns from the beginning until today and until Jesus comes back. We know this. Everyone who has ever lived has died. Right? It's going to happen. But Jesus, in his coming, will take the weight from around Adam's neck. And how will he do it? Well, first of all, Christ is the second Adam. We actually uh, sing a song, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery, that refers to this. He is the better Adam. He is humanity recreated, the second chance. And what does he achieve for Adam, for who's carrying this incredible weight? Well, first of all, Jesus has obeyed where Adam did not. Jesus has obeyed where you and I have not. In verse 19, it says, For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. Now, if we want to say it doesn't seem very fair, sometimes these things that God does, they don't seem fair, right? If, how can we be guilty in Adam and all these sorts of things? Shouldn't I just be guilty on my own? I, I would say, you know, first of all, that question may be sort of an exercise in futility because we are guilty on our own. Who cares if we're also guilty in Adam? But, but think about what God is saying here to us through, through the Apostle Paul. The many will be made righteous. How can this be? Christ's sacrifice on the cross is more powerful than Adam's sin. Christ's life of righteousness is more powerful than Adam's act of disobedience, his life of unrighteousness. You know what this means at the end of the day? The playing field is not level between good and evil. Does it feel, I mean, when, when we're human beings and we're struggling with sin, it feels like evil is more powerful, doesn't it? Evil's got the upper hand. But Jesus comes along and he gives the lie to it. He says it doesn't matter how many times you sin. It doesn't matter how many acts of evil that you do. My act of good is so much stronger. It tips the scales and knocks them right over. The road to Bethlehem is the promise that evil does not have the last word in our world. It doesn't even have the second or third or fourth word. It may have the first word, but it all comes apart in Jesus Christ. He is able to take these generational sins and make them right somehow. He is able to take away the guilt and the condemnation and the penalty because he is, Jesus is, the seed of the woman. Anselm of Canterbury wrote uh, a thousand years ago, 
uh, something that's in Latin called cordus homo, which uh, one of my seminary professors says, sometimes people translate this, why did God become a man? But he said, no, 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 that's not, it's why the God-man, referring to Jesus being both fully God and fully human. Why did Jesus need to be both? And Anselm uh, talks, I'm just going to summarize the basic ideas, but he, he tells us that first of all, he had to be fully human because our debt is a human debt. It's our nature that needs to be paid for. It's our sin that needs to be taken care of. It's our very humanity that needs to be recreated. So Jesus became a human being just like you and me, in every way human so that he could carry our debt from birth until death and pay the penalty. And everything he took to the cross, therefore, is made free, is set free. What are you carrying today? Is your body deteriorating from day to day? Yeah, I know it is. You tell me about it all the time. They're in all of our prayer requests, right? Our bodies are falling apart. Do you know that Jesus had a fallen apart body just like us and he killed it on the cross so that one day we would inherit a body that doesn't fall apart but is the kind of body that lives forever, no deteriorating. Are you ever sad? Did you know that Jesus was sad and he took that sadness to the cross? And you know, not all sadness is evil. Sadness is often the right response often to evil circumstances. But Jesus took that sadness to the cross and made it holy so that we wouldn't be stuck in it forever. So we would have it in its appropriate measure. Because what's wrong with our emotional life? It's not that we have emotions. Sometimes we make it out that that's the problem. I just don't want to feel anymore. Some of us, as a matter of fact, try and deal with life by numbing our feelings in one way or another, through distractions, through chemical addiction, through whatever it is. We try and just numb our feelings until there's nothing left. But the problem isn't that we feel. The problem is that our feelings are doing this, right? They're all out of control, They're out of proportion to the things that we're going through, and that's actually complicated because it's not just our feelings. It's that we don't always understand what's happening. We don't have the right, you know, there's all this stuff that's going on, but Jesus took all of that to the cross from birth to death so that it could be made new. Christ has obeyed, and Christ's sacrifice on the cross is more powerful than Adam's sin. Jesus' death overcomes many and every act of sin. Jesus' coming shows that God didn't ever give up on us. Jesus' coming, God becoming a human being, shows that our humanity was meant to be good always. When we talk in our society and culture about, we we just assume, don't we, that people are valuable and have dignity and worth. At least I hope we do. I hope that's the conviction that we all have, that human beings have inherent value and dignity and worth. And it doesn't matter, you know, how injured they are or how bad they've been, there's still some glimmer of that in human beings. But what do we base that on? Culturally, what do we base that on? Why do we say human beings are good? If you don't believe that we were made by a good God, if you don't believe that God has a good purpose for our lives, then why should we treat each other nicely? 
It becomes purely a matter of pragmatism, doesn't it? Well, if I don't treat other people nicely, they might not treat me nicely like I need. So as a matter of fact, even in places like science, we start talking about the good of our community, right? We we don't just have a survival instinct, thank you, a survival instinct for ourselves, but we have a survival instinct for our community because that increases my own survival, right? But that only works until someone becomes very powerful, doesn't it? Because then I can have the advantage no matter what. I can take advantage of you in whatever way I want to. Are you tracking with my logic here? If we don't have inherent value and worth, if what we call human dignity only comes because we all want to survive or we all want to feel good or something like that, we only have an impetus to treat each other well insofar as it benefits me, right? Ourselves, not like Pastor Ian only, but all of us. But God's telling us that's not the way we were made. And the fact that Jesus becomes a human being, the fact that the Son of God becomes a human being, God who cannot stand sin and won't have anything to do with it, the fact that he becomes human tells us that we are valuable. We aren't defined by the fact that in Adam we will sin and in Adam we are guilty. And that means it extends to everybody, doesn't it? Not just the people we like or who are like us. Every single person is invited to know Jesus and to have their dignity and value and worth affirmed. And all they need to do is say yes to Jesus. And that's it. He's done it all. The reign of death has ended. Because life has entered the world in Jesus Christ. What are you carrying today? What guilt? What relationship do you have where you don't really want to see that person because it reminds you of all the wrong things that you've done or all the wrong that was done to you? What is unforgivable? in your own understanding. If Jesus can forgive Adam, who let all of this in in the first place, if he can make Adam right, he can do the same for you.